This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And you're going to hear our full panel discussion with, as I like to say, group of ballers. They know a <laughs> lot about the world economy. As you rightly pointed out, $300 billion in market cap. We're talking about Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone, Anand Mahindra of the Mahindra Group, and Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Check it out. Steve, I'm going to point to you. What are you most worried about in the world right now? Jeez. There's a lot to worry about, uh, you know, because, you know, first of all, just stepping back from it, uh, you know, the social media and the internet are making it very difficult uh, for almost any government. Uh, to function. Uh, if you come out with a plan, uh, you, you have instant uh, mobilization of opposition to anything you're doing. It, it even makes it difficult for companies uh, uh, sometime uh, with sort of this roving band of uh, opposition. Uh, and, and, you know, financially, um, you know, sort of the, you have a few weaknesses in, in the system. I think the European banking system isn't as uh, uh, strong, certainly, as uh, the U.S., which is in great shape. Uh, you, you have um, um, uh, private investments in the technology area, which the WeWork uh, um, you know, sort of non-public offering mm -hmm. has exposed as, as being, uh, you know, really uh, pretty inflated. When, when, you, when you have an industry that more or less marks up its positions, uh, you know, uh, in, in a closed circle uh, among itself, and, and then it pops out into the real world, uh, and the real world says, what are you thinking? Uh, th that's usually, um, you know, sort of a, a wake-up call, but it's, you know, that, that part of the world isn't big. That's a, that's a relatively small uh, uh, set. Um, and I guess any of us on the stage, uh, and then I'll finish because I don't want to dominate anything, it, when you have $13 trillion of... Uh, negative interest rates, I don't even know what a negative interest rate is. <laughs> and, and in other words, why would I take my money and give it to somebody and for the privilege of them holding it, I have to pay them like it's a storage unit. Um, and I, I'm supposed to get interest when I give people money. And as, as interest rates go down, uh, most of those places that have those negative interest rates, it's not stimulative because banks have trouble earning money, uh, you know, in that kind of environment. Uh, and if banks don't do well, uh, then they don't grow their capital. They, they can't then extend uh, credit, mm -hmm. and countries don't grow unless there's credit extension. And, and so this whole movement, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, to negative interest rates, I think uh, is, is some kind of uh, warning sign some type of wake-up call. How did we get in that position? Why are we in that position? Not us as Americans, but us as uh, financial people looking at the world. So Brian may know more than I do, but it just seems That's not pretty... possible, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, so no. Brian, does this negative rate environment that we increasingly see around the globe tell you that there's some underlying weakness that maybe we're missing? We, see, we know the obvious problems that are out there, but is there something more substantial? Well, I think Steve's point is right. 
there's the uh, monetary policy decision to take rates as low as possible to, uh, to accommodate the economy, accommodate growth, and they're lower in this country than they've been historically, but they're still positive and other places are negative, and there's a significant amount of it. I think there's a debate whether it actually transmits the economy, because if you look in some of the countries where the rate structure's been negative for five years, mm -hmm. the banks still have to pay consumer depositors interest because to Steve's point, they're not going to give us $100 and get 95 back and think it's a great thing. And so I think there's a great debate the economists will hack out. But the reality is it's showing a weakness in economies. And there needs to probably more fiscal work done and more reform work done to stimulate those economies. And Well, good luck with that. And good luck with that. The good news is in the U.S., you already have an economy which is pretty flexible and work uh, uh, talented people, uh, lots of capital, deep capital markets, uh, a banking system that restructured. Uh, a, a set of rules that you can understand, one law that covers an economy that's the largest in the world as opposed to you know, multiple laws. And so you're seeing the U.S. continue to grow, unemployment's low, and consumers continue to spend. So the question really, from the macro sense, is all that parade of interesting uh, things to ponder and worry about, it is only Wednesday, is offset by 70% of the U.S. economy has been speeding up its activity all this year and that is as big as China's economy. And so when was that tension just going to be really wrestled to the ground? And that's the question. Well, and so, Anand, I, I put that to you because you look across 100 countries. You're, you're operating in 100 countries, uh, I believe. Is that, are, are we at a, a breaking point uh, where we may see something snap here? Or can we continue on, uh, especially from a consumer perspective, in, in a nice upward, gentle trajectory? Let me start on a lighter note first, because when you asked uh, Steve this question about what's on your mind, I do have a very weighty global problem on my mind right now, and that is I have a two-year-old grandson who lives in New York, whose father is Mexican-American and speaks to him only in Spanish. So right now, my major preoccupation is how to improve my Spanish so I can communicate with my <laughs> grandchild. <laughs> but if you look at it, that's a lighter note, but frankly, that to me is the real thing that worries me about the world. You look at it from a human-centered point. When you try to operate in 100 countries, language, communication, keeping the core of your business and the governance and the values of people is a major problem. So I'm looking at more as a, I'm not really worried about growth. I think we have enough locuses of growth to come up. You heard the Prime Minister of India this morning. And I don't think what he was talking about was hype. Steve, you've been out there. Very often, I think he knows what the potential yeah. is. If you look at the population, and he talked about four Ds this morning, the democracy, the, the, the demography as well, and he talked about demand and decisiveness. If India does get moving again, and I think he's taken some steps recently, like the tax cut, which should yes. do exactly what the tax cuts did here, you're going to get another engine of growth for the world for sure. And I, Brian, is, yeah. I, I see him more in India than I do here. So I think both these gentlemen understand what the potential of India is. I'm really not worried about consumer demand coming in from different parts of the world. Mm. We just have to look around the world. All the focus has been on America, rightfully. But I think you're going to see an uptake in a lot of other parts of the world. But why does it feel, and I know we talk so much about recession, and I know you spoke with David Weston over the summer, a quote that we used a lot <laughs> on Bloomberg. We have nothing to fear about a recession right now except for the fear of recession. 
T-shirts, bumper stickers. I mean, <laughs> but I just feel like it feels like if you talk to businesses and CEOs, they're hesitant to spend. But then you talk about the strength of the consumer. How do you reconcile those two? And, and, and are you still ruling out recession? Yeah, uh, nobody. If you look at the, all the consensus, you know, the 38 economists, when I talked to David, I said, look, there's nobody has a negative sign in front of any of their estimates. And so in the bottom five, probably average, in the mid, you know, 5.5 for G GDP US next year and stuff. So even though people are saying the probability is going up because that's the uncertainty, the question is nobody's predicting it's going to happen. The fear you have is, going to your point, it's only Wednesday and, and what's going on. Mm -hmm. Will you get the consumer confidence to, uh, to right. deteriorate? It, right now it's, it's come up, it's come down a little bit, and will you get it deteriorate? If, if that starts to happen, that's the worry. You do not see that in their activity every day. Um, the, the combination of housing prices still being constructive, which that part of the wealth is constructive, the stock market still being up, that part of their wealth is constructive, their wages growing faster now than they have really since any, uh, any point in the last eight, nine years, the em employment levels being high. So that's always the, the good news. The question is what breaks that? And that's what I worry about, the, the psychology of business deteriorating somewhat. Again, high, high, still very high, but tipped over a little bit. When, do the, when does a, a business owner convey to their uh, teammates that it might not be as good for you this year, next year, i.e. higher wages, a bigger bonus, you know, more incentive plans, whatever, or you get to keep your job. We do not see that. In our, our middle market, loans are growing at a faster clip now than they were in the last few years. So it's all okay. And, that, and that's the question that we said. And I think the fear could cause us to back up before the data will show you're there. So some of that fear and caution, Steve, comes from this dispute between the U.S. and China. There are a few people who have done as much, dare I say, shuttle diplomacy than you have between the leader, leaders of those two countries. You write about it uh, in your book. Steve's book, by the way, is on sale now. I don't know if uh, anybody's <laughs> heard about it. What it takes. Um, but We'll have that commercial in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by. But you do write extensively about China in the book. Your experience there, the Schwartzman scholars, your relationship with President Xi. How does this get resolved, at least to the satisfaction that the CEOs that, that Brian is talking about specifically feel good enough to start spending money again? Yeah, um, I'll talk about that in one second, but, but just in terms of risk, uh, I, I've always felt that um, you know, this cycle, when it comes to an end, won't do it uh, from, from normal you know, business cycle issues because that seems to be managed pretty well. Uh, it, it'll be some type of geopolitical uh, type of incident or Brexit, circumstance which, which uh, uh, hits the confidence uh, of consumers. Uh, it, it won't be overproduction of goods and things like that. I could be wrong, but I've, I've been thinking about this for a few years and, and we got enough of these major things that, that could uh, change people's uh, attitudes. Uh, you know, we're at full employment. Uh, you know, so so people have a good situation, but their behavior may change uh, if they're scared of something. Uh, as as to China, U.S. Um, uh, that's a uh, it, it's, it's an interesting situation because uh, b basically driven uh, by the fact that you know in the last uh, presidential election we discovered. That that 40 percent of Americans uh, couldn't write a $400 check in an emergency. Mm -hmm. So so if you think about that, th these are people who fundamentally don't have savings. 
uh, and they don't earn much money. Uh, and their, their education, American education, has really slipped dramatically uh, over the last 30 to 40 years. And, and those, those people are very unhappy. Uh, and and they, they, in effect, are demanding some type of change. And, and part of that change happens uh, when, they don't, when they don't get satisfied with domestic solutions. Historically, with populism, um, you, you get angry at some foreign uh, entity, and, and China's the target. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty obvious that it was going to be. And I, I talked to the Chinese about that right after the election. And, they, they were not sensitive to that. And I told them, don't, don't worry about it. We, we didn't understand it either, uh, you know, which is why you know, we had a president elected that nobody thought would be elected, except him. Uh, and, and so we all learned something. I said, don't feel bad. You, know, you, you didn't have bad staff work, but now you know. And they, 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 they said, okay, well, you know, if that's the case, we're gonna have to uh, adjust. Now, China for 40 years uh, has been growing faster than any major country in history. Uh, and so this is like whatever practices they have, which in history when you're, you know, sort of a, we used to call them, you know, developing countries or underdeveloped countries. Uh, now we call them emerging markets. Uh, you know, they, and the United States did this in the 19th century. We hide behind tariff walls. Uh, you protect your industries. Uh, you, you don't let foreigners in into certain things that, you know, where, where they can compete. Uh, and and that world lives until you become a more mature country, and then you integrate. Well, I think I think in China, part of, part of the interesting issue is they still think they're poor, and we sort of think they're rich. And their their GDP per capita is ten thousand uh, dollars. Ours is roughly sixty. But when they started this sprint 40 years ago, I think it was like $400 a person. So, so there's been enormous progress, but they're, they're still you know, sort of like one-sixth uh, of us. And now we're demanding our bottom 40% in effect. Uh, and also, European countries don't like, they have similar problems uh, that, that we're asking China to like become a more mature country and join uh, the rest of the world. Their attitude is we're still poor, so, so okay, if we have to make adjustments, um, it's, it's not our favorite thing to do. Uh, what, what do we do? And, and so what you've been seeing over the last two and a half years is, is, is the U.S. wanting them, you know, as sort of the leader of the developed world, to, to come pretty far. And on the Chinese side, um, they're trying to figure out how far and how fast right. they, they want to get someplace. So, 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 you know, the two countries got quite close um, in May, at, at which point the Chinese just w withdrew. They, right. you know, they had agreed to a variety of things, we thought, uh, and then they looked at the hole and they said, uh, you know, my goodness, let's not do that. And now this is starting again. And meanwhile, what, what's happened in this two and a half years is that the, the two countries have, have started um, as a result of false starts and, and, and a variety of other tactical stuff, you know, are, are starting to decouple, uh, which is very dangerous. 
Um, well, can we, I want to dig a little bit into that because I do wonder, I think increasingly we're expecting this world where it's China and its allies and the United States and its allies. Is not, you sit in a very interesting place, figuratively and literally, between China and the United States. How do you see it? I see it as a situation of enormous opportunity. I, I have to be mercenary <laughs> Wait, about that. Wait, you mean the spat you do? Of course, absolutely, because to be, and I'm, I'm just being truthful here, that for a long time it wasn't kosher for anyone in American policy positions to admit that there was a kind of conflict with China and that India in fact could be one of the players uh, in this game as a buffer against China. That was just a no-no. If you went to the Council on Foreign Relations, nobody would admit that. I think it's now it's in the open. And I think President Trump has even made it more in the open. I mean, going to Houston and listening to our Prime Minister, I think he made it very clear what kind of alliance he had. I think there's nothing but opportunity for India in this. And we have to play our cards right mm -hmm. and see that we are viewed now as a very, very appropriate ally for the US as a buffer both in defense terms, frankly. If you look at the number of defense exercises between the US and India, they're proliferating dramatically. Defense procurement from, the, from India is already burgeoning. We never used to buy. We used to buy more from the Russians. And frankly, all the, all the tenor of the relationship with India is right. This is a democratic country. It's a country that values IPR. This is a country that has scale and growth. So there is profit for global companies too over there. So I think India has nothing but a unique opportunity right now. And we have to just play those cards right. And I think it will be a win-win for both the US and for India. So it, it, I actually agree, and having been with a bunch of CEOs with the Prime Minister this morning, all who are talking about their business expanding in India, it's been a natural recipient. And I think some of the uh, bureaucracy and things that were difficult to operate have been de dealt with. They, they can be improved, and everybody knows. I, I think the broader context here, though, is, is you know, global trade. And, and if you go back and say, if, if the China-US situation will take longer, the question is, what can we resolve in the interim? And this is where, unfortunately, I'm not sure what happens given the, the politics and the uh, situation this week to the USMCA and things like that, which are critical to get mm -hmm. done. Because a, as much as India is a beneficiary, uh, Mexico and Canada in a, in a trade with the US is a beneficiary uh, in a sense, or a way to operate. Let's make it simpler. The wage scale in Mexico is, is actually lower than parts of China. There's a, a, they could use the jobs. There's a lot of people who could move the manufacturing there. Uh, there's already integrated manufacturing uh, supply chains. Canada's a different situation. So I think to keep the U.S. kind of moving forward, there are three or four things to knock out. Everybody hopes for China, U.S., but there are a couple things to knock out first, and one of them is a USMCA. I just right. don't know politically if they can push it through, mm -hmm. even though I think both sides seem to want it. And if they could right. push that through, that would be good and give more time to work, I think, on China. So, Brian, I want to stick with something that you said in the context uh, of the meeting that you had with Prime Minister Modi, which is clearly CEOs are stepping into a brighter and maybe higher expectation type spotlight. We hear it over and over again. Do you feel a greater responsibility now, especially given what's going on in Washington and London and capitals around the world, to speak out both on your own issues related to business, but also social issues? We, in the end of the day, especially our company's been around for 230 plus years. And so 
we've been around through all kinds of fun stuff if you think about it. But, but the reality is our job is to produce, produce profits and make progress on what society needs us to do. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the purpose statement by the BRT, the work I do that we all do with the International Business Council and the World Economics Forum leadership for years, the, you know, Mike's leadership on, on the climate, you pick your thing. The idea is we have to have companies can do both, produce a great profit and make sustainable, uh, make progress on the SDGs. Mm -hmm. And so I think all the CEOs agree with that. And I, I, so the attribute where people say we're speaking out publicly on an issue generally comes from the need on that second, but it also reverberates the first. If you have teammates working for you and you went what we went through over the last five or six years on post nightclub, Charleston, Vegas, uh, Houston, Parkland, and you had teammates in every one of those situations, that led our team to say, we ought to take a stand on something. It was not because we needed to go out and make some policy statement. Mm. It was because, if you think about to have great teammates mm. to make that profit you have to make, you have to protect them. On HB2, which was a North Carolina issue, about the, we had to come out because it was our headquarters town and our people would not travel there. And so, well, people are thinking this is about you know, me or something. It's not. It's about we have to represent the 200,000 teammates, the five or 600,000 people and their families, and insure them well and pay them well. But also, we need them to be successful and to produce great profit and sustain you know, progress on the SDGs. And that and is the key. And so as long as we can do and, the investors and stuff should stay with us. And then it gives us the permission and the availability, but it comes from really the view that our customers, our teammates, our communities, and our shareholders really are more aligned. And it's nothing new. This is, we came out of the community, we were formed by people saying we need financing, to Steve's point, in this community 230 years ago. So start to think about it. We've been through all the impeachment proceedings. We've been through <laughs> tough elections. That one in 1800 was a mess. And they made a nice play called Hamilton out of it, right? We have been there through this. And we will be there through the next one. If we basically do both, make great returns for our shareholders and deliver on, on the society needs. Because in the day, that means communities grow, that means we grow. So in India, we handle the same thing. We built a children's museum in Mumbai that, uh, you know, why? Because they never had a children's museum in Mumbai. You'd say, how's that consistent? Well, that's what our teammates wanted us to do to help out. So it's, it's work on both sides. Steve, I want to bring you back in because I'm curious, as you know, on the campaign trail, some of the candidates have kind of put private equity um, on their radar and saying we, We've been happy with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just watch the baton sometimes comes oh, it back. Always, it always comes um, back. But I am curious that saying, you know, private equity is responsible for some of the inequalities that are in our world. What do you say to that? Well, I, I'd say there's a lot of misunderstandings. Um, and, um, you know, the private equity um, uh, industry is, is comprised of a lot of different uh, firms and but basically what we do is uh, leaving other asset classes like real estate aside um, you, we buy companies and we try and make them grow faster uh, because when you exit you get a higher multiple for higher growth uh, and and to do that you have to invest in these businesses they just don't grow faster because it's in your interest so, so you put more capital in them uh, and, and you come up with good strategies uh, and you, you drive growth. So, so when you grow businesses, you typically need more people. Uh, and, and so um, th this is sort of a virtuous circle. Uh, and you know, from a financial risk perspective, um, you know, we went through the global financial crisis and 
private equity firms didn't didn't you know have financial difficulties more than other kind of companies. Mm -hmm. So 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 on the downside, um, the, the industry hasn't really created much difficulties. Um, on the upside, uh, you, you earn typically for your investors who are pension funds, they're regular people. They're the firemen, the government employees, the corporate employees. Uh, you make double the stock market indexes. So, so basically, this is a really good model. Uh, uh, in the 1980s, uh, it wasn't so much like that. In the 1980s, there were only a few firms, and, and prices were so low uh, in the 80s that you could buy something and just cut costs, uh, lay off some people, and you were successful. That world is just gone. Uh, with the kind of higher prices that you have to pay to buy anything today, uh, you, you just can't be successful doing that. You, you must grow your way out of uh, you know, the creation price. And, and so I think there's some leftover perceptions. There are also an occasional uh, high profile uh, type of uh, situation, whether it's in the retail business. But, but you must look at retail generally. And, and Brian would know more than I do, but retail has been, with the disintermediation of the internet, the number of retail companies that have gone busted are huge. The same way you could get a private equity company that owns a newspaper. That was in this political treatise uh, that one of the candidates came up with. What's happened to newspapers? I mean, the vast majority of them have gotten into trouble. So you can take one example and, and make something out of it. But, but just to give you context, right? There were 66, there were roughly 151 million jobs in the United States. Uh, 66 million people changed jobs in a given year, right? US economy is unbelievably dynamic. The number of people who were fired in the United States was 21 million. The number of total jobs in the private equity-owned uh, companies is 11 million. So when you look at the massive amount of companies, where do you get those 21 million people who, who lost their jobs? It's not from private equity. It's a very small part of, of the whole economy. So, so this, this argument is wrong, uh, and it, it sort of pyramids mistake on mistake. And, and I think there's, there's an ideology that goes with it, and also terrible marketing on the part of the private equity firms. You <laughs> have to give them a D uh, for not being able to explain this. Right. This is pretty simple no, but get stuff. get your message or right. explain what you're doing. So because of where we are and, and all the discussions that we've had uh, at this summit about climate and sustainability, I think it's fair to say that when we look back on this week, even this very newsy week, the star, and I'm, apologies to, to all of you, is gonna be a 16-year-old. Uh, Greta Thunberg, her statement about uh, what the world is doing or not doing related to, to climate change, I'm just going to quote what she said to the heads of state. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We're at the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of endless economic growth. How dare you? That's memorable. Is she right? Are we not doing enough as governments and as companies to really face this? And are corporate leaders, at least, and on listening? 
I think they were. I was very pleasantly surprised to see the number of people who showed up at the climate events. The CEOs who signed up wearing that large ungainly badge about the 1.5 degree ambition. That's not a pretty badge. So to wear that itself was <laughs> it's not a, a fashion statement. Not right. a fashion statement. But people are committed and you know my I've had one statement I make about sustainability and I've been repeating it with monotonous regularity. I don't really intend to get into the debate of whether climate change is real, who is the guilty party, who's not done it, has the West polluted, should the West be paying and India only benefiting, should we be getting money, I stay out of that. My statement is, it's very simple. This is the biggest profit opportunity for business people in the next few decades. Why are even we wasting time arguing about who's right, who's wrong, whether it's a 16-year-old or it's the president of the U.S.? You know, frankly, somebody asked me the other day in a podcast, they said, do you have a message for governments and do you have a message for other companies? I said, yes, I do. A little tongue-in-cheek. And I said, to governments, I would say, please, don't fight climate change. Don't invest in innovative technology. Let India do it. Let us get ahead of the game. And then you come in after we've put ourselves right on the top. And to my fellow company, people in business, I would say, climate change isn't real. Just stay out of the game. Keep arguing with the 16-year-old girl. We are making money at everything we've done in renewables. Let Mahindra Group go out there. Clean up the opportunities. You come in later. Because to me, the point I was making was this is futile. And we are just creating almost a media-created sensation of villain, victim. And frankly, the winners are everybody. Because everything our group has done in sustainability has actually made money. And the businesses we've started in the last five years are amongst the fastest growing. Waste to energy, solar. Why are we even wasting time on arguments? We, we agree. I, I'd agree. The, the time, the debate, the debate and the arguments of what's going on scientifically and stuff are, are just don't help. And, and I agree that with Anand, that, you know, the reality is we have to make progress and we have to make a lot of progress. It costs about $2 trillion a year uh, is the estimate for the environmental part of the SDGs. Six trillion overall. All the charity world's 800 billion a year. The US government budget's only four trillion a year. So there's only, no government's gonna solve this and no charity's gonna solve it. Who's gonna solve it is capitalism and driving the change. So in the last, since 2007 to 2019, we did $125 billion of stuff around the environment. In the next seven years, 10 years, we'll do another 300 billion. That is, you know, green bonds, that is, we're carbon neutral in 20, not five years from now, mm -hmm. we're carbon neutral next year. Um, it is solar uh, installations across the country of India, it's solar installations across uh, the largest uh, uh, warehouses in the United States, it's a wind farm financing. There's a tremendous business opportunity, but it's time for capitalism to come to drive it, because that's where the money will be. And so it's how we operate as a company, and all of us have companies who operate in driving them to carbon neutrality and making that commitment. It's how we then finance the build out. And it's, the last part is a key thing, and Anand mentioned this, we can't be, in the Western developed countries, we cannot be of a sort that we will not allow other countries to have the energy that they need to have to develop. We have to produce the right energy for them. That it was sustainable energy for all from the last UN Secretary General where they figured out a plan and how much it cost. That is the critical thing is we can't be arrogant in the West or developed countries and say, hey, you can't have the power. 
we have to sit there and say, we will get you the power the right way. And that, that is where we really got to watch what's going on with coal and other things in some of these economies. We have to provide the replacement, even if it costs us all money. But I think the business opportunity actually takes care of it. That goes back to the point you can produce a profit and you can make the goals. And if you look at what we're doing, and this, is a, this has become a large business for us. And, yeah. and, so, you and know, you asked about is Greta right? Again, about saying you're just focusing on money. I would just say, Greta, let it be about money. Mm. Don't make it about either or. Right. You've got to ditch that dichotomy. So the only argument I both. have with her, it's, about it's both. both. Yeah. It's because she's making it sound like give up your ways of making money and worry about the environment. I'm saying the real power is not that. So she is wrong. I'm saying we're businessmen. You're showing us the money. There is money there. And the, the pursuit of profit and capitalism is in fact one of the answers to this solution. So I, I would argue with her if I met her that don't make it so you know, black and white. But I think there's concerns that the goals that a lot of folks are laying out are more ambitious, uh, ambitious than the actual initiatives. And I think that's some of the concerns. But from what you folks are saying, I no, mean, I'm no. listening to you talk. And I know, Steve, you guys have ESG investments over at Blackstone, so I know. It, it, it's, it's just the compounding effect of, of everybody doing more and more and more. And, and is it going to be enough? There will be great debate every year right. on the 40 years yeah. about that. The question is, if we do more next year than this year, and you get more people doing more, and you get the investors, not only Steve, yep. but also the mainstream investors to say, if you're not doing something on this, we're going to start to take our money. Not, not the oil companies, but all of us. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and then you'll see the compounding effect of that. Yep. And, and it yep. is powerful. I mean, just think of. It's called an ambition loop, which yeah. is already in. We set an ambition three years ago about reducing our carbon footprint by 25% in three years. We did it in one year. So we made another rollover. It just keeps multiplying. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. No, I mean, I think they've answered the questions. I mean, it, it, the, the sale has been made uh, yeah. on sustainability. It's a favorite saying of mine. And yeah. <laughs> you made the sale. I mean, really, uh, you know, there, there's, there's not much right. debate. Right. That, that, that but are we doing it fast enough? Because I think one of the things that was brought up on one of the panels is we're kind of running out of time. You can't reverse what's done, right. and so do we need to be more ambitious with our goals Let's and actually put the policies in place? I read a book recently that said you should always go big. Yeah. Excuse me? I, said, I read a book recently that said you should always go big, Steve. Yeah, yes, well. That's one of the big takeaways. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, you know, the hardest thing to do is change what people think yeah. and, and form a consensus. I, I think on sustainability, um, that, that's, that's happened. Uh, and uh, virtually every business I, I know has concerns in that area. Uh, and, and as Anand was saying, um, it's, it's very profitable to, to address those issues. I mean, we, we found once we started looking at that area, you know, we, we owned a, a large retailer uh, and, um, you know, we, we, we hired a team to start putting in sustainability stuff. And I know this sounds almost like primitive, but on the roof of every one of these retailing units is some air conditioner condenser or something. And you know, it's, it's what keeps the store uh, you know, cooled. And we just sent somebody up to look at every one of them. Uh, and what you found is that a little rubber you know, sort of thing that makes some of these circular things do something <laughs> was, was, was like tired 
it, it wasn't taught. Yeah. Uh, and as a result of that, the electric costs were way higher. And by buying something as simple as like a, a two, three dollar, you know, sort of little part, um, we, we could cut electric bills mm -hmm. by 15, 20 percent. Right. And, you know, who could be against this? Right. The, the, the practices sense. at the beginning were the problem, but what, what's happened is, is there, there's a, the, the, the sensitivity on these issues has, has driven uh, the, the business community to do all kinds of things that, that are basically, some of them are not even so hard, right. and they're really important. It's a mindset. To so we only have a couple minutes, so we're going to ask you to be kind of quick. But we'd like to end on an optimistic note because we do feel like we're all challenged every day with some of the headlines that are coming out. So give us something, Brian, to be hopeful about. I'd be hopeful about the uh, human capital in the world, for lack of a better term, the ingenuity and the ability to solve problems. And so if you look at 1969 in America to today, we went through Vietnam, we went through an impeachment resignation of president, we went through the civil rights uh, issues. We went to the DNC with the riots in the street in 68, 69, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Twice as many people working in the U.S. Six million more working, less manufacturing, 80 million more people working. And the unemployment new claims today that are filed on a Thursday are the same nominally as they were back then. Mm -hmm. And the population has gone from 250 million people to 300 and some million people. And 80 million people more work, all because of the ingenuity in the US, that's a very optimist. We'll figure a way through this. And if we can figure a way through this, India can figure a way through this, Europe can figure a way through this, it's just gonna take some time. But you have to be optimistic that all this talent, these eight, seven billion, eight billion people in the world are gonna figure out solutions. We just have to get them working. I feel Anna? optimistic. That's good. I'm gonna keep it very simple. Um, even though I gave an argument against Greta earlier, I find her one of the biggest causes for optimism. I grew up in a generation at the time of Woodstock. And you know, people from my generation missed the fact that young people didn't seem to have the kind of uh, search for identity that we went through. They weren't questioning things. There weren't those coffee room conversations, questioning the world, existentialism, Sartre, Camus. Where's all that gone? It was all Instagram now. And the protests in New York gave me hope. Because it felt like the old days. It felt like people, young people, were beginning to question again. And you know in America more than anywhere else that that generation is what brought about real change. That brought an end to the war. So I'm optimistic because if, me, if these young people are going to become anything like what that generation was, you're going to see real change and very positive change. Last word to you, Steve. Well, I, I was at a meeting uh, before lunch uh, where I guess we all were. Uh, with, with, with the uh, Prime Minister of India talking about the development of India. And he's a very uh, special kind of uh, head of a country. But what gave me enormous optimism is they went around part of the room and, and each CEO was talking about uh, what they were doing uh, in India. Uh, and each of these individuals were really amazing. Uh, what they were doing, what they were innovating, what they were creating, the way they presented themselves, um, the way they were conceptualizing how to expand, it just happened to be one country, that 
I sort of looked at this group of people and I said, this is a resource uh, that's really unique. Um, the drive, the commitment, uh, the creativity of every one of the speakers. And I said, you know, we've got a winning hand long term because there are people in back of each of those people who are equally gifted. Uh, and, and I think that's a part of America we take for granted or we don't see it. Uh, but anybody who sat in that room watching, listening, had to be dazzled by the people who were in charge of substantial organizations trying to do really interesting things. And those people will do that in other areas as well. Right. And, and that's what I think is, it's, it's a really, right. really under understood area of, of uniqueness uh, in America. And a reminder of everything going on behind kind of the crazy headlines. That was our panel from the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.